So we are almost done with First Thessalonians. Uh, I think next week will be the last week where we're going to preach out of First Thessalonians, and we're going to study Genesis. Um, so as we're winding down First Thessalonians, it is good to remember where we are, and we are on chapter five, and we have we've been studying chapter four and five for the last I don't know three months or so, and if you re reread three and five. 4 and 5, you'll see that Paul is making specific instructions to the Thessalonians church. He is giving them specific instructions on how to live. Right? I urge you, this week, go back to 1 Thessalonians and read the whole entire chapter and focus on chapter 4 and 5. 4 and 5, Paul clearly reveals what God's will is. And Paul, the reason why Paul is revealing what God's will is, is so that these Christians, and all Christians, will live in accordance to God's will. What are some of the things that Paul teaches the Thessalonians and us? He says, the will of God is this, that you abstain from sexual immorality. The will of God is to increase in brotherly love. Right? The will of God is in the light of Jesus' return, that you work hard with your hands, you mind your own business, right? And you, and, and, and you strive to have a quiet mind. A quiet mind, as you talked about, it's not a mind that freaks out when trials come, but a mind that strives to have peace with it by framing the current situation through the, through the sovereignty of God. It is the will of God to strive for peace in our church by pastors doing our job properly and by you respecting your pastors. Another rule of God is for you to strive peace here by serving and loving one another. If that means rebuking each other, so be it. The rule of God is to always be thankful, always be joyful, always be praying. The rule of God is not quenching the Holy Spirit, which Pastor William talked about last week. Quenching the Holy Spirit means ignoring the Holy Spirit, ignoring His teaching. The rule of God is to test all things. The rule of God is to avoid all evil. These things, these nine things that I just listed, they're specific instructions on how you ought to live. What is clear from these verses is obeying the will of... What makes you, us, a Christian is how we live. It is in our behavior. If you are a Christian, God has called you to behave in specific ways, and it is in these ways that God has called you to behave. Question I ask you this morning. Have you lived like this this week? Have you strived to live this way this week? Have you strived to put on faith? Have you strived to have peace when there's turmoil outside? Have you strived to love your brothers and sisters if, if the need be rebuking one another? Have you strived to live this way? Or has this week just been the same week? A week that says, oh, you know, I'll try. But, you know, I'm tired. God understands that I'm tired. I'll do it tomorrow. Was this week full of tomorrows? I'll do it tomorrows? How many, how, I'll do it tomorrow did you do this week? Man, I'm, I'm kind of starting out to turn strong today. The reason... I ask you this. And the reason I express it in this way, it's not to make you feel guilty, but it is to tell you God's will is clear. It is to live a certain way. It is a constant struggle of striving. Why don't we do it then? Why don't we strive? It's clear, right? What God wants us to do, how he wants us to live, is absolutely clear. Then why don't we do it? I mean, there are many reasons, I suppose. Maybe one reason is, you're just not convinced that this is what God has planned for you. Maybe we're not convinced that this is God's will for us. Yeah, it's written in the Bible, but in my mind, I think God is a certain way. And my idea of God is a God that doesn't, that doesn't demand anything from me. Maybe the reason that we don't behave, start to behave a certain way, is because it's bad theology. Maybe back in the day we heard that Jesus saves you free, 
Gospel of, gospel of Christ is free, and therefore we think everything is free. We think it's, if it's free, then he doesn't ask of me, he doesn't, he doesn't, he's not going to ask me to do anything because it's free. Right? In our minds, we have, the, we have this idea of God sometimes, that he's just the nice guy dad. You know the nice guy dad, the sitcom dad? You know the nice guy dad? What's the nice guy dad? He never yells at you. Right? He, he just, he's always going to listen to you. He doesn't want to offend you, so he doesn't tell you what to do. He always wants to solve your problems. That's a nice guy, Dad. The nice guy, Dad, never asks you to obey. In the sitcom world, right? Which dad asks you to obey? And we, we adapt that theology. Our God is a nice guy, Dad. Who doesn't ask us to do anything. And that's wrong, and that's dangerous. Because a nice theology of a nice guy dad, theology of a nice guy dad God, it's not really going to change you. It won't. The reason why God wants you to obey, it is in the obedience of God. That is where freedom and healing and power comes from. This week, or last week, you might say, I struggled. There was a struggle. And I was wrestling with myself. And I was wrestling with one thought. I'm not going to tell you what that thought is. But there is this one thought that infiltrated my mind on Monday. And it stayed with me all week. Right? I work crazy hours this week, like I always do. Like when I go to work, it's like I'm going to war. Right? It's like I'm bombarded with emails and questions and cases and... And like, you know what I mean, clients, it's just war. But in the, even in the midst of war, that thought is always in the back of my head. Telling me, hey, give in, man. It's okay. You're tired. You deserve this. Right? Hey, man. It's okay. God will understand. Hey, man. By the way, I'm very good. I'm very persuasive with myself. Right? I'm very persuasive in how I, how I try to trip me up. So in the entire week last week, I was just struggling with this thought, one thought in my head. But the reason I struggled with it, because if I, I knew that if I gave in to this thought, as tempting as that thought is, if I gave in to that thought, it's going to destroy my relationship with God. It's going to affect my relationship with my family. If I give in to that one thought, that I myself are so am so easily trying to persuade myself to giving into. I know it's not going to be good for anyone, and it's not going to be good for you. So you fight that thought by putting on faith. You know how I put on faith this week. You know how I battled that thought this week. A couple of weeks ago, I went to Korea, and I was like singing Korean hymns with my mom. That was really good. So what I did was I got I got out the Korean hymn book. And I start singing Korean hymns. I forgot how, how those hymns went, so I YouTubed it. And YouTube, God bless it, it has every Korean hymn. So I go, hymn number 246, it's right there. So I was following along, singing the hymns. Right? Meditating upon the word. That's how you fight it. Have you fought? Have you strived to put on faith? Have you strived to live differently? God calls you to live differently. Not because he's an overbearing, strict disciplinarian, but because doing so will give you life. Look, look at these things that he wants you to do. Abstain from sexual morality. It is a good thing. Strive for brotherly love. It's a good thing. Put on faith, love, hope. It's a good thing. Always pray. Always rejoice. Always give thanks. These are all good things. If you do it, you experience Him in your life. And you will see Him move. Perhaps the reason why you're not seeing Him move in your life is because you're not striving to be in Him. If he's like an absentee landlord, an absentee God, it is perhaps your heart is closed, and your heart is closed because you're not striving. 
And the question is, how do, what's the secret of striving? How do you strive? You strive by not looking at yourself. But, but you strive by looking at God. That's what's happening in verse 23. Verse 23 is the conclusion of what Paul was talking about in chapter 4 and 5. And this is the last concluding remark that he's doing after all the instructions that he gave. And what is the instruction that he's given? He's giving, like, it's not even instruction. He concludes his instruction by praying in verse 23. What is, the, what is Paul's prayer in verse 23? He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does Paul pray about in his concluding remarks? Paul is saying, Thessalonians, it is God who sanctifies you. It is God of peace who will do it for you. Look at God. The secret of you and I living holy lives, it's not looking within yourself, but it is always to look at God. The more you are enamored, the more you are aware of the character and the qualities of God, the desire for holy living will follow. But if you only look to yourself, if you only look to your own self-discipline to live this way, you're, you're going to fail. Look, this happens over and over and over again. People get convicted by my sermons and they go, oh, I want to live differently. And you strive to live differently. How long does it last? Three days? And then it's back to your old self. Why? Because your focus is on the wrong place. Your focus is on, you should dwell on the characters and the qualities of God. That will lead you to live a holy life. And that's what happened to me when I was young. When I was 21, 19, 20, I was in a super Christian phase. And the problem with my super Christian phase was I was all about self-discipline. Right? I had a mentor. He said, you must pray. You must live holy life. I go, okay, messed up. Right? And I tried to live a holy life. But I was miserable at it. There was no joy with it, and I failed, failed. But now I see the secret to holy life is the more that I'm aware of who God is, the more that I, the, these desire for holy living will follow. That's why Paul is praying at the end of his instruction to look at the God of peace who sanctifies you completely. He will certainly sanctify you. The way you have holy living is to dwell on the characters and the qualities of God. And that is what we're going to talk about today. Hey, I have time. Today we're going to talk about the character of God. Characters of God. Three specific characters of God. Specifically, we're going to talk about the God who sanctifies his people. But before we talk about what sanctification is, we first have to talk about peace. Verse 23, once again, Paul says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. Who is the God that sanctifies you? It is the God of peace. The first quality that Paul, ta- Paul tells the Thessalonians and us who God is, is God, Paul says God is a God of peace. What does this mean? What does it mean for God to be the God of peace? In scripture, the word peace implies many different things. One of the, one of the first things that it implies is peace implies unity. Right? Peace implies unity. Opposite of sin is division. Opposite of God, which is sin, is division. In God, there's unity. Outside of God, there's division. Right? When God is peace, it means God is God of unity. Another word for peace means, another definition of peace is complete, completeness and not brokenness. When Paul says God is God of peace, he means God is God of completion. He's not a God who's broken, fragile, right? Another word for, another meaning for peace is clarity. Peace comes, peace means clarity of thought. The, com, the tranquility of mindset that results in clarity of thought. The opposite of peace, therefore, is confusion. God is a God of unity. God is a God of completeness. God is a God of, God is a God of clarity, truth. That's what it means for God to, God to have peace. God to, God to be the God of peace. And it is when you know the God of peace. It is when you know the God of peace, 
your division becomes, God saves, God cures the divisive part of your life and he makes it unified. When you know God, he, your brokenness becomes healed and you become a more complete person. When you know the God of peace, your confused mind becomes clear. That's how you know. God of, because God is a God of unity, God is a God of completeness, God is a God of clarity, when you know God, when the light of God starts shining in your life, you will start to have unity in your relationship, you will start to experience healing, and you will start to experience clarity of thought. And that's true. That's how you know that you, the God of peace is in your life. Are there broken relationships that are being healed? Things happening in this church where people that have divided relationships with their parents, with their friends, when God, when God saves them, they naturally want to make amends in their relationship. Relationship that has been fractured for so long, when God is involved here, they strive to make amends. When God is involved, He, gives, he, he, he rebuilds your brokenness. He makes you into a more complete person. Your brokenness can be in terms of sexual morality. Your brokenness can be in the sense of depression. I don't know what your depression is, but when the light of God starts shining in your life, the brokenness in your life, you will start to experience healing. When the light of God, when the God of peace shines in your life, your confused mind becomes clear. I had a lunch with my dear sister when I was in Korea. And she's great. You know what she does? She's a Bible study. She's a small group leader. And all she does, do, I don't know whether she's a good Bible small group leader or not, but she's effective. And she says, all I do with my small group is I yell at them to read the Bible. Right? They're in a, you know, like a, like a chat space, kakao. That's like the, I don't know, Korean version of the message thing. You guys have it, right? So they, there's a kakao room that she made with her small group members. And they read four chapters a day. Doesn't matter what it is, they read four chapters a day. And like, I think there's like 20 of them. And she says, all right. Who, who read chapter all four chapters today? Raise your hand. And there's like a hand icon, right? And they go, I read, I read. If there's a punk that didn't read, didn't raise their hand, she would go after them and say, "You got to read." Not, oh, you're tired. I understand. It's hard. No, she doesn't do that. She goes after them. She goes, "You got to read. What are you doing?" And you know what she said? You know what she said? She says, "By doing that." By making people read, she's changing lives. The most common testimony that she hears from her small group members is, oh, I used to think this way. Now I don't. I don't know why I thought that way before. But I don't think that way anymore. These are things that she hears over and over and over and over again. Uh, my thought used to be confused. Now it's clear. Why? Because the word of God is shining in their lives. And, she's ex- and they're experiencing peace. Peace is not... Oh, that's not what peace is. Peace is brokenness being healed. Peace is divided relations becoming unified again. Peace is confused minds becoming clear. And that can only happen within the presence of God. And that's true. Your boyfriend, your husband, or wives, children, spouses, jobs, work, whatever, cannot give you this peace. They cannot. You know they can't. Your spouse can't. Your children certainly can't. Your career certainly can't. Your friends certainly can't. Only the thing that gives clarity and wholeness and healing is the God of peace. The question I ask you, fellow Christians, do you have this kind of peace? Are you experiencing this kind of peace? Those who claim to be children of God, those who claim to be in the light of God, are you experiencing this kind of clarity, this kind of healing, this kind of reconciliation? Is that the part of your experience? If it is not, may I dare to say there's something wrong. There's a difference between 
religion as an outward cultural phenomena that you're part of. And a person who truly knows, who truly knows God. If religion is just an outward cultural phenomena in your life, you will never experience the peace of God. But when God invades your life, peace will happen. The peace that Paul talks about in verse 23, he's not really referring to these qualities of peace that I just mentioned, but he's talking about peace that comes in the aftermath of war. Right? There's peace that comes in the aftermath of war, where there's no more conflicts. I saw Wonder Woman the other day. You know the part of Wonder Woman where she fights the Germans? After she defeated the Germans, peace came. Wonder Woman, you know, successfully ended World War I. Go female power, right? After Wonder Woman defeated, defeated, defeated the Germans in World War I, peace came over the land. That's the kind of peace that Paul talks about here. Peace in the aftermath of war. What is Paul talking about when he says, God of peace, peace in the aftermath of war? He's talking about the war between human beings and him. Specifically, war between him and those whom he has saved. The Bible tells us that before we're saved, we are all enemies of God. All of us are enemies of God before we are saved. And the most striking image of this of this truth is found in Psalm chapter 7, verse 12. It says, If a person does not repent, God will bend his bow and make it ready to shoot. So it's chapter Psalm 7. Psalm 7 is not an idea of just a nice grandfatherly God. It is an image of a warrior God. And he's saying to all unrepentant people, God is pulling his arrow and is ready to shoot. I'm not aiming at because I'm judging you. Right? Okay, I'm middle. Oh, that, that's kill. Sorry. You know what I mean? So, like, an unrepentant person, God is bending his arrow to ready to shoot. Which means God is at war with his enemies. Colossians chapter 1, 23. We were all enemies of God. We were all enemies of God. We were at war with God. How are we at war with God? By destroying everything that God holds dear, and, and we destroy everything that God holds dear and, and everything that God holds valuable. It's true. We do. Even though we may not feel like it, that's what we do. Human beings, by our nature, are enemies of God. We destroy the things that God, God holds most valuable and God, God holds most dear. This week, I was reading an art like uh, Psychological Works of Sabrina Spilrein. Do you know who she is? No, of course you won't. Because you're not a nerd, right? So I was reading the works of psychologist Sabrina Spilrein. She's the disciple of Jung, Carl Jung. And she wrote a lot about sex. So I was reading her, reading her works. And she says, basically, sex is very complex. Right? She says, in the act of sex lies everything about life and death in, in that act. And I go, that's very interesting. So I was thinking about sex, specifically lust. Right? What, 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 is, what is it about lust that God detests so much that he mentions it over and over and over again in the Bible? Right? Every time he mentions, you're going to hell, he basically talks about lust, right? Sexual morality. He talks about sexual morality more than he talks about, as much as, more, more than about money. So what is about sexual morality? What is about lust that makes it so detestable to God? If you look at lust, it's like it's a it's a com- complicated thing. Within lust, there is the desire for sex, which is a good thing, right? Sex is this awesome physical representation of the union between husband and wife, and it is awesome and it is great. And in lust, you have that little bit of ingredients of the proper like proper nature of sex. In lust, you have desire to be known and to know someone, which is good. But in lust, you see, right? There's a little bit of good in it, but a lot of it. There is also a desire to control. There's also a desire to demean. 
to destroy, to discard. Guys, you know that's true. Inside the lustful heart of men, and maybe women, I'm not a woman, I don't know, there is a heart that you want to dehumanize someone. Right? There's a part of it that you enjoy in their humiliation. That you want to impose your will towards that person. And you want to discard that person after, they're, after you're done. Guys, you know it's true. No one watches pornography for the beauty of lovemaking. Let's be honest. It is in the destructive nature of that act that, you, that we're, enti- we're enticed to. If we're honest, let's be honest, men. The people that you lust after, whether it is screen or whether it is in real life, part of you hates that person. How else will you explain it? You want to discard that person, destroy that person. You enjoy in their humiliation. How is that not hate? People who are watching pornography, you are hating the person that you're watching. And that person is made in the image of God. And we do it as if it's it's innocent. There Pastor Jay goes again, bashing men, such a feminist. Why don't you wear a Me Too t-shirt up here, Pastor Jay? But women, what you do is just as evil, isn't it? What do you do? Generally speaking, not any of you specifically, generally speaking, you compare, don't you? You compare the standard of what a man ought to be, and you impose that standard on, on, your, on your boyfriend, especially your spouse. Some of the ways that women, like wives, constructively criticize their husbands. The message is, you are not good enough for me. Right? Ladies, when you're constructively criticizing your husband, that's the message that you're sending to you, that you're not good enough for me. You're failing me. You're not meeting my standards, husband. That's hatred too. Isn't it? Husband and wives, when you fight with one another, the words and the attitudes and things that you say to one another, it is just raw hatred. And those are just small examples of what is inside of us, you know. That is how we are at war with God. We hate. We dehumanize people. We use people. We dismiss people. Tell me you don't do it. And we think that's innocent. Make no mistake, we were all enemies of God. But it's the past tense, you see. We were enemies of God. Why is it in the past tense? God has brought peace. Though we were his enemies, God has brought peace. How did God bring peace? You know the story. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. On that cross, he became the personified form of our sin. The hatred that you have towards your fellow man. Right? The arrogance and the pride and the thing that, that leads you to destroy your relationships and yourself. Up on that cross, Jesus became the re- representative of our vileness. And God crushed Christ with a mighty hatred that he has for sin, with a mighty just in just righteous anger that he feels for sin, he fled it, like he flayed Christ on the cross. And he crushed him. Because he became the personified form of our sin. And because we have, because he has done it, we have peace with God. What does it mean to have peace with God through Christ? Because Christ has paid the penalty of our sins. 
when God looks at us, we are no longer guilty. We are justified. What does it mean to justify? Justified means God does not hold us guilty anymore. It is a legal position. God approves of us. Look, every day I live in the world, as a lawyer, I live in the world of denials and approvals. That's all. Basically, my whole life is to get things approved and not get denied. Right? That's what, that's what I do. Approve. I live in the world of approval and denial. And there are consequences. If you're approved, it's freedom. If you're denied, you get kicked out. Because of Christ, we are approved. We are approved that we became children of God. That's what it means when Paul says God is a God of peace. God is a God of peace because he justifies his enemies. He makes he brings peace with his enemies, and not only does he bring peace with his enemies, he makes his enemies his people. What does a God of peace do? Verse 23. Now may the God of peace sanctify you completely. What does that mean? He says, if you have peace with God, what does God do? He sanctifies you. When you became his, when you have peace with God, he begins the work of sanctification in you. What is the definition of sanctification? Sanctification means becoming what I, what I am declared to be. Sanctification is becoming what I am declared to be. What am I declared to be? Because of Christ, I am declared to be innocent. And because of Christ, I am declared to be the child of the Holy God. And as I am the child of the Holy God, God starts to make me, in, make me like himself. Look. I love my son. He's like me. How do you know he's like me? He walks like me. I have a very distinct walk, they tell me. He walks like me. He thinks like me. Right? Smarter than me. Kind of looks like me. Better looking than me, but kind of. Right? There are traits that you have when you're a child of your parents. Sanctification is when you, when you have peace with God and when God makes you His, He begins a process where you will become like Him. That's what sanctification is. Another word for sanctification is God is renovating you. That's what Richard Baxter says. God is beginning a great work of renovation in your life. I visited my parents' home, like I said, like a couple of weeks ago. And it was like the home, it was an apartment home that they lived in since early mid-90s. Some of you before you were born. And my parents renovated the whole place. So when you go, it looks like, kind of structurally, kind of looks like the home that I grew up in. But inside, everything has changed. I'm a fan of the bathroom. The bathroom, they have the, like the spaceship-looking machine in the bathroom. Where you sit down, it gets, the seat is warm, right? And you get so many options. I did not know there's so many options available in the bathroom. There's like, it's like a little control panel. You have a little control panel. I didn't have a little control panel when I was growing up. Right? I was sitting in a, you know, like, like cold toilet. Everything is different about that home. It looks kind of the same, but it's different. Because they renovated the place. That's exactly what God does to you. When you have peace with God, He begins work of sanctification, which means He begins to renovate you. He does. Right? How does he renovate you? He renovates you completely. That's what Paul says in verse 23. May the God of peace completely sanctify you. Spirit, soul, and body. What does Paul mean, spirit, soul, and body? Does it mean, Paul says, Paul thinks the human beings are made up of three parts, the spirit part, soul part, and body part. If I say it, Pastor Ujian is going to yell at me because that is, that is blasphemy, right Pastor Ujian? No, human beings are made up, human being, Paul's definition of human beings is really, human beings are made up of the outer man, which is our outer body, and the inner man, which is our inner body, right? That's Paul's definition of a human, what, what, what the human being looks like, right? It's a dichotomy, right? It's like an outer man, inner man. But why did Paul use the word spirit, soul, and body? He's using spirit, soul, and body to convey the complete nature of which the God, how God is transforming his people, Right? What does Paul mean by spirit? By spirit, Paul means, I don't know, by spirit, it tends to be me, it tends to mean, spirit is a part of, part of your existence that where you get, where you know God and where you worship God. 
Spirit is a description of the part of your existence where you get to know God and you worship God. Soul is a part of your existence where you get to think and, we, and think and, and express your personality. That's the soul part, right? Soul part means like your your conscious your 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 conscious thought process. That's the soul part. Body part is of course what you do, how you behave, how you live. And what Paul is saying is, when God gives peace to His people, He completely renovates their spirits. He renovates their soul. He renovates their, He renovates their body. Which means, when God sanctifies you, He re, He renovates your relationship with Him. He renovates how you think. He renovates what you do with your body. That's the sanctifying work of God. Before sanctification, before justification, you were dead in your spirit, which means you did not know God. You didn't care about God. You didn't know God. But when God starts His sanctifying work in you, you begin to know. You begin to have a personal experience with God. When God starts to sanctifying your work, how you think starts to change. Before, right, before I thought of my job in a certain way, now I see my job in the light of who God is, and my job is more fulfilling. When God starts to sanctify you, how you behave starts to change. Thing that, thing that you so readily did, and thing that was so, like, that you thought there was nothing wrong, you start to change. One of the sisters here, her testimony was, before I was saved, I didn't think drinking was there. I don't think there was anything wrong with drinking. I didn't think there was anything wrong with drinking. Right? But now, after Christ, I don't know why, but I'm persuaded that that's wrong. Visitors of the ABC store, I'm talking to you. It's wrong, she says. I don't know why. Pastor Jay never taught, talked about the evils of alcohol. But I realized it's just bad. Behavior changes. Everything changes when you are sanctified. He begins a great sanctifying work in you. That's how you know that you have peace with God. Is God sanctifying you? Is He changing your relationship with Him? Is he changing the way you think about things? Is he changing your behavior? Can you honestly say there are changes happening in you? There is, praise the Lord. He's sanctifying you. Which means that he, he has saved you. But if there are no changes that are happening to you, if your values are the same as, as, as they were, your thoughts are the same as they were, and your relationship with Him is just the same as it was. If your relationship with Him is the same as it was when you were in youth group, then there's something wrong. Is He sanctifying you? Look, my wife found a photo album. I don't know where she found it. It's me in my honeymoon, 1998. I was like 15 pounds lighter. I had a Chinese star, movie star haircut. My hair looked awesome, by the way. Right? Like it was this young PJ and young Tamani. Right? I was looking at the picture, and first thought was, man, I had good hair. And second of all, man, I was skinny. And third, I was an idiot. Right? Not because I had a cool hair. That's the best part of that photo. But I remember how I thought and how I behaved. Right? And just thinking about how I was and what my thought process was. Just, oh. Thank God I'm not that person in my picture. Thank God she's not that person in that picture. There have been great changes. You know, how about everything? How about everything that have been great changes? Is it because I'm such a great guy? No, of course. And you know I'm not a great guy. Once again, you tell me I'm not a great guy. But it's the sanctifying work of God. Can you say that about yourself? 
everyone in this, everyone in this culture, like, they want to change, right? Desire to metamorphosize ourselves is a common human desire, right? Very fond of Men's Health magazine, right? Obviously, right? And, and the model of the magazine is better life now. So the whole magazine is about if you work out a certain way, you can be a better you. If you eat a certain way, you can be a better you. If you work out a certain way, you can be a better you. If you dress a certain way, you can be a better you. Basically, the whole magazine is about just inner, the personal transformation. Right? You can, if you eat right and sleep right and exercise right, you can be like the male model cover guy. That could be you. <gasps> we want transformation. Right? We want to be more beautiful than we are. We want to be more rich than we are. We want to be more successful than we are. All of it is because you just want to, you're not really happy with yourself. You want to transform. But I don't need to tell you, the only transformation that really matters is in the hands of God. It is when He starts His sanctifying work in you. That's when true change, true change that matters happens to you. You know? And He does this. How do you know? Verse 24, He will certainly do it. Paul says, God is God who is faithful. Faithful means God cannot lie. God will do what he promised he will do. And he says, God will certainly sanctify you. If you truly belong to him, if you have true peace with him, he will certainly change you. He will certainly change your wife. He will certainly change your husband. He will certainly change your kids. He will. Only if you have peace with Him. If He's leaving you alone to be the same person that you were before, then it's because you don't have peace with Him. People, people get into two mistakes in terms of sanctification. Number one, people think, you know... One thing that people mistake people make is they think God doesn't sanctify. God justifies, but God doesn't sanctify, which means God forgives your sins, but God doesn't change you. Many Christians think that way. Many Christians think that God is just happy with saving you, and that's that's it. That's wrong. That's unbiblical. He just doesn't save you to leave you alone in your sins. No, He saves you so that He will sanctify you. It is God's great objective, plan in your life. God's sole purpose and plan in your life is to save you, to sanctify you, and is to glorify you. Do you understand? Listen to me carefully. All of you have certain agendas for your life. You think your life ought to have a certain way. You have plans for yourself. I'm here to tell you, God's plan for you is to save you, to sanctify you, and to glorify you. His purpose, his great desire for your life is to change you. Not to give you what you want. Look, I'm an expert in Joe Alstein. Because I listen to Joe Alstein radio every day. It's like candy. And God bless Joe Alstein. The thing what, what, what makes Joe Alstein dangerous is that he's wrong in God's, God's priorities. He thinks God's priorities, right, is, is, is giving us a best life now. Giving you what you want. Giving you success. He says the other day, God never says no. He just says wait. No, God says no all the time. Because the purpose is not Him giving you what you want. That's what, that's what Joe Austin believes about God. No, no, no. God's purpose is to change you. To sanctify you. And He will take whatever He, he, will, he, will, take, he will use whatever he, he, he can. Everything to do that. He used this church. He used these long sermons. Right? He will use suffering. He will use good gifts. Everything to sanctify. That's what, that's what Paul says in Romans 8. God works together. God, what, what does it say? God uses all things for the good of those who have, who, whom he has caused. He uses everything to change you. That's the first mistake people make. God just saves you and doesn't change you. That's wrong. If God's not changing you, then He hasn't saved you. 
Number two, people, people, people make people mistake is, you know, I have to sanctify myself before I can go to God. I have to clean myself up. I got to be a better person before I can go to God. That is wrong too. Right? Because I, I know people, you know, I want to I want to go to church, but I, I got to get over my drinking problem first. Right? I got to clean up my act first before I can go to God. No, that's not true. You can't really change yourself. It is in the hands of God that you are changed. So, conclusion of this long sermon is this. Has God changing you? If he has, praise the Lord. Pray for more continual work, and sanctifying work in your life. How does God, what are the tools that God uses to sanctify you? Obedience. Right? Obedience. Attend church on Sundays. Go to small groups. Yell at your small group members for not reading the Bible. By the way, we start in small groups soon. I urge all small group leaders to yell at their members to read the Bible. Don't be that small group leader that says, oh, I understand you're tired. It's okay. No, no, no. Don't be that small group leader anymore. Let's yell at our small group members. That's not official, by the way. It's just my personal thing. Fight. Put faith on. Strive to love. Obey. When you strive to obey, he will use a striving to sanctify you. He will. If you're not sanctified, if you can honestly say your religion, Christianity is just an outward culture religious phenomenon, and there's no changes that are happening within you, you need to repent. And ask for you to have peace with God so that he will begin sanctifying you. Let us pray. Let's observe, review our hearts. Ask yourself, are you saved? Are you being sanctified? And I'm not talking about whether you are more busy with church work, which is a good thing, but you know the difference between outward formalism and internal change. Internal change is not only for the super-Christians. It is for all Christians. Has God changed you in your relationship with Him? You see, changing you in how you think? Is He changing you in how you behave? If he, is, if he has, praise the Lord. Praise Him for the saving and sanctifying work in your life. And ask Him to continually sanctify you through obedience. If you're not being sanctified, if your faith is exactly the same as how it was in your youth group, and there is no change in your relationship with him. There is no change in your thought process. There is no change in what you value. And there is no change in your behavior. If you still think premarital sex is okay, if you still think getting drunk is okay, if you still think inter- getting entertained by certain things are okay, if there is no changes in your behavior, then ask God to help you repent. So that you have peace with him. So that he'll begin his great changing work in your life. Let us have a time of genuine self-reflection in light of truth. And time of repentance and praise. Let's pray. Father, we are very wrong about you. We confess. We think that you required nothing from us. We're, 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 perpetrators of bad theology. We think because your grace is free, which it, which it is, and, there, and then therefore there's no, nothing that we, we, can, we should do in, in, in terms of relationship with you. If we're honest with ourselves, Lord, a lot of us are just the same. We may feel convicted by messages once in a while, For some of us, Lord, the conviction goes away as soon as we leave this place. And we we go back to the same values, thought processes, and behaviors. 
Father, if those, if those, if there are some of us here who really have not experienced any life changes, perhaps it is because they are still at war with you. And if they are, Lord, I pray by the mercies of Christ that you'll forgive them and that you'll save them and that you'll begin your sanctifying work in them. For my dear brothers and sisters who have been saved, for my dear brothers and sisters whom, whom you have begin, have begun to change, I thank for, for, for them, I thank for the miracle, miracles in them. And I pray that they will strive to obey you more and more. May they fight the temptation to put off their relationship with you to tomorrow. May there be no more, I'll do it tomorrow, Lord. But may they truly prioritize their relationship with you. <clears throat> Help them to know, Lord, that if it's, it is very easy for us to fall away. Help them to put on faith, hope, and love. Help them to strive to obey, so that as they strive to obey, you will use their striving to bring more sanctifying work in them. Father, save us from, once again, save us from this thinking that you require nothing from us. That's not true. May the desire to obey you be the desire of our hearts. And as we, as we obey you, Lord, may we experience miracles in our lives. I pray for all my brothers here and sisters here who are sick. If they are suffering from physical ailments, we pray that you will heal them whether it is through medical means or miraculous means, I pray that you will heal them. If there are some of us, Lord, who, who are going through trials and tribulations, I pray that you will give them a quiet spirit by reminding them of your lordship and sovereignty. If there are some of us here with broken relationships, if our relationship with our parents or our in-laws or with each other, if they are broken, Father, I pray, may the God of peace reconcile them. I especially pray for the married people here. Father, sin is clearly shown within our marriage relationships. And we can be so hateful and judging and unforgiving towards our spouse. Father, I pray, if there's brokenness, if there's division within our marriages, I pray, may the God of peace reconcile them and bring them true life in, 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 in their marriage. I pray that you bring them true love in their marriage. Father, we cannot do anything apart from you. If you leave us alone, we will destroy ourselves. The world thinks that we can somehow heal ourselves. That's not true. The only true power to heal and change us in a relationship belongs to you. And we recognize that. I pray that you will help us change. May our church change for you. All these things, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.